0: You're listening to Mysterious Mountains, a production of the West Virginia Humanities Council, where together we explore the imaginary landscape of West Virginia through genre fiction and folklore.
1: I remember that people used to ask me what I do, and I said I deal in human failure. I see some very, very good people, some very, very intelligent people, successful, professional people at their very worst, their emotional nadir, the lowest point
0: in their life. I'm joined this episode by Judge Jim Douglas, former Braxton County prosecutor and lawyer with over 40 years of courtroom experience. And for the last few years, he's been a judge on West Virginia's 11th Family Court Circuit in Kanawha County. He's going to share some insight into one of Uncle Abner's rare courtroom dramas, But first, the mystery.
2: West Virginia Humanities Council presents Uncle Abner by Melville Davison Post Naboth's Vineyard Read by Eric Wagoner One hears a good deal about the sovereignty of the people in this republic, and many persons imagine it a sort of fiction, and wonder where it lies, who are the guardians of it, and how they would exercise it if the forms and agents of the law were removed. I am not one of those who speculate upon this mystery, for I have seen this primal ultimate authority naked at its work, and, having seen it, I know how mighty and how dread a thing it is, and I know where it lies. And who are the guardians of it, and how they exercise it when the need arises? there was a great crowd for the whole country was in the courtroom. It was a notorious trial. Elihu Marsh had been shot down in his house. he had been found lying in a room with a hole through his body that one could put his thumb in. He was an irascible old man, the last of his family, and so lived alone. He had rich lands but only a life estate in them, the remainder was to some foreign heirs. A girl from a neighboring farm came now and then to bake and put his house in order, and he kept a farmhand about the premises. Nothing had been disturbed in the house when the neighbors found Marsh. No robbery had been attempted, for the man's money, a considerable sum, remained on him. There was not much mystery about the thing, because the farmhand had disappeared. This man was a stranger in the hills. He had come from over the mountains some months before and gone to work for Marsh. He was a big blond man, young and good looking, of better blood, one would say, than the average laborer. He gave his name as Taylor, but he was not communicative, and little else about him was known. The country was raised, and this man was overtaken in the foothills of the mountains. He had his clothes tied into a bundle and a long-barreled fowling-piece on his shoulder. The story he told was that he and Marsh had settled that morning, and he had left the house at noon, but that he had forgotten his gun and gone back for it, had reached the house about four o'clock, gone into the kitchen, got his gun down from the dogwood forks over the chimney, and at once left the house. He had not seen Marsh, and did not know where he was. He admitted that this gun had been loaded with a single huge lead bullet, He had so loaded it to kill a dog that sometimes approached the house, but not close enough to be reached with a load of shot. He affected surprise when it was pointed out that the gun had been discharged. He said that he had not fired it, and had not, until then, noticed that it was empty. When asked why he had so suddenly determined to leave the country, he was silent. He was carried back and confined in the county jail, and now he was on trial. At the september term of the circuit court the court sat early although the judge simon kilrail was a landowner and lived on his estate in the country some half dozen miles away he rode to the courthouse in the morning and home at night with his legal papers in his saddle pockets it was only when the court sat that he was a lawyer at other times he harvested his hay and grazed his cattle and tried to add to his lands like any other man in the hills and he was as hard in a trade and as hungry for an acre as any. It was the sign and insignia of distinction in Virginia to own land. Mr. Jefferson had annulled the titles that George Third had granted, and the land alone remained as a patent of nobility. The judge wished to be one of these landed gentry, and he had gone a good way to accomplish it. But when the court convened, he became a lawyer, and sat upon the bench with no heart in him and a cruel tongue like the English judges. I think everybody was at this trial. My uncle Abner and the strange old doctor, Storm, sat on a bench near the center aisle of the courtroom, and I sat behind them, for I was a half-grown lad, and permitted to witness the terrors and severities of the law. The prisoner was the center of interest. He sat with a solid countenance, like a man careless of the issues of life. But not everybody was concerned with him for my uncle Abner and Storm watched the girl who had been accustomed to bake for Marsh and read up his house. She was a beauty of her type, dark-haired and dark-eyed like a gypsy, and with an April nature of storm and sun. She sat among the witnesses with the little handkerchief clutched in her hands. She was nervous to the point of hysteria, and I thought that was the reason the old doctor watched her. She would be taken with a gust of tears and then throw up her head with a fine defiance and she kneaded and knotted and worked the handkerchief in her fingers. It was a time of stress, and many witnesses were unnerved, and I think I should not have noticed this girl but for the whispering of Storm and my Uncle Abner. The trial went forward, and it became certain that the prisoner would hang. His stubborn refusal to give any reason for his hurried departure had but one meaning, and the circumstantial evidence was conclusive. The motive only remained in doubt and the judge had charged on this with so many cases in point, and with so heavy a hand, that any virtue in it was removed. The judge was hard against this man, and indeed there was little sympathy anywhere, for it was a foul killing, the victim an old man, and no hot blood to excuse it. In all trials of great public interest, where the evidences of guilt overwhelmingly assemble against a prisoner, there comes a moment when all the people in the courtroom as one man, and without a sign of the common purpose, agree upon a verdict. There is no outward or visible evidence of this decision, but one feels it, and it is a moment of the tensest stress. The trial of Taylor had reached this point, and there lay a moment of deep silence, when this girl sitting among the witnesses suddenly burst into a very hysteria of tears. She stood up, shaking with sobs, her voice choking in her throat, and the tears gushing through her fingers. What she said was not heard at the time by the audience in the courtroom, but it brought the judge to his feet, and the jury crowding about her, and it broke down the silence of the prisoner, and threw him into a perfect fury of denials. We could hear his voice rise above the confusion, and we could see him struggling to get to the girl and stop her, but what she said was presently known to everybody, for it was taken down and signed, and it put the case against Taylor, to use a lawyer's term, out of court. The girl had killed Marsh herself, and this was the manner and the reason of it. She and Taylor were sweethearts and were to be married, but they had quarreled the night before Marsh's death, and the following morning Taylor had left the country. The point of the quarrel was some remark that Marsh had made to Taylor touching the girl's reputation. She had come to the house in the afternoon, and finding her lover gone, and maddened at the sight of the one who had robbed her of him, had taken the gun down from the chimney, and killed Marsh. She had then put the gun back into its place and left the house. This was about two o'clock in the afternoon, and about an hour before Taylor returned for his gun. There was a great veer of public feeling with a profound sense of having come at last upon the truth, for the story not only fitted to the circumstantial evidence against Taylor, but it fitted also to his story, and it disclosed the motive for the killing. It explained, too, why he had refused to give the reason for his disappearance. That Taylor denied what the girl said and tried to stop her in her declaration meant nothing except that the prisoner was a man and would not have the woman he loved make such a sacrifice for him. I cannot give all the forms of legal procedure with which the closing hours of the court were taken up, but nothing happened to shake the girl's confession. Whatever the law required was speedily got ready and she was remanded to the care of the sheriff in order that she might come before the court in the morning. Taylor was not released, but was also held in custody, although the case against him seemed utterly broken down. The judge refused to permit the prisoner's counsel to take a verdict. He said that he would withdraw a juror and continue the case, but he seemed unwilling to release any clutch of the law until someone was punished for this crime. It was on our way, and we rode out with the judge that night. He talked with Abner and Storm about the pastures and the price of cattle, but not about the trial, as I hoped he would do, except once only, and then it was to inquire why the prosecuting attorney had not called either of them as witnesses, since they were the first to find Marsh, and Storm had been among the doctors who examined him. And Storm had explained how he had mortally offended the prosecutor in his canvas by his remark that only a gentleman should hold office. He did but, quote, Mr. Hamilton, Storm said, but the man had received it as a deadly insult, and thereby proved the truth of Mr. Hamilton's expression, Storm added. And Abner said that as no circumstance about Marsh's death was questioned, and others arriving about the same time had been called, the prosecutor doubtless considered further testimony unnecessary. The judge nodded, and the conversation turned to other questions. At the gate, after the common formal courtesy of the country, the judge asked us to ride in, and, to my astonishment, Abner and Storm accepted his invitation. I could see that the man was surprised, and I thought annoyed, but he took us into his library. I could not understand why Abner and Storm had stopped here, until I remembered how from the first they had been considering the girl, and it occurred to me that they thus sought the judge in the hope of getting some word to him in her favor. A great sentiment had leaped up for this girl. She had made a staggering sacrifice, and with a headlong courage, and it was like these men to help her, if they could. And it was to speak of the woman that they came, but not in her favor. And while Simon Kilrail listened, they told this extraordinary story. They had been of the opinion that Taylor was not guilty when the trial began, but they had suffered it to proceed in order to see what might develop. The reason was that there were certain circumstantial evidences, overlooked by the prosecutor, indicating the guilt of the woman and the innocence of Taylor. When Storm examined the body of Marsh, he discovered that the man had been killed by poison and was dead when the bullet was fired into his body. This meant that the shooting was a fabricated evidence to direct suspicion against Taylor. The woman had baked for Marsh on this morning, and the poison was in the bread, which he had eaten at noon. Abner was going on to explain something further when a servant entered and asked the judge what time it was. The man had been greatly impressed, and he now sat in a profound reflection. He took his watch out of his pocket and held it in his hand. Then he seemed to realize the question and replied that his watch had run down. Abner gave the hour and said that perhaps his key would wind the watch. The judge gave it to him, and he wound it and laid it on the table. Storm observed my uncle with, what I thought, a curious interest, but the judge paid no attention. He was deep in his reflection and oblivious to everything. Finally, he roused himself and made his comment. This clears the matter up, he said. The woman killed Marsh from the motive which she gave in her confession, and she created this false evidence against Taylor because he had abandoned her. She thereby avenged herself desperately in two directions. It would be like a woman to do this and then regret it, and confess. He then asked my uncle if he had anything further to tell him, and although I was sure that Abner was going on to say something further when the servant entered, he now replied that he had not, and asked for the horses. The judge went out to have the horses brought, and we remained in silence. My uncle was calm, as with some consuming idea, but Storm was as nervous as a cat. He was out of his chair when the door was closed, and hopping about the room looking at the law books standing on the shelves in their leather covers. Suddenly he stopped and plucked out a little volume. He whipped through it with his forefinger, smothered a great oath, and shot it into his pocket. Then he crooked his finger to my uncle, and they talked together in a recess of the window, until the judge returned. We rode away. I was sure that they intended to say something to the judge in the woman's favor, for, guilty or not, It was a fine thing she had done to stand up and confess. But something in the interview had changed their purpose. Perhaps when they had heard the judge's comment, they saw it would be of no use. They talked closely together as they rode, but they kept before me, and I could not hear. It was of the woman they spoke, however, for I caught a fragment. But where is the motive? said Storm. And my uncle answered, In the twenty-first chapter of the Book of Kings. We were early at the county seat, and it was a good thing for us, because the courtroom was crowded to the doors. My uncle had got a big record book out of the county clerk's office as he came in, and I was glad of it, for he gave it to me to sit on, and it raised me up so I could see. Storm was there too, and, in fact, every man of any standing in the county. The sheriff opened the court, the prisoners were brought in, and the judge took his seat on the bench. He looked haggard like a man who had not slept, as, in fact, one could hardly have done who had so cruel a duty before him. Here was every human feeling pressing to save a woman and the law to hang her. But for all his hag-ridden face, when he came to act, the man was adamant. He ordered the confession read and directed the girl to stand up. Taylor tried again to protest, but he was forced down into his chair. The girl stood up bravely but she was white as plaster, and her eyes dilated. She was asked if she still adhered to the confession and understood the consequences of it, and, although she trembled from head to toe, she spoke out distinctly. There was a moment of silence, and the judge was about to speak, when another voice filled the courtroom. I turned about on my book to find my head against my Uncle Abner's legs. I challenge the confession, he said. The whole courtroom moved. Every eye was on the two tragic figures standing up, the slim, pale girl and the big, somber figure of my uncle. The judge was astounded. On what ground, he said? On the ground, replied my uncle, that the confession is a lie. One could have heard a pin fall anywhere in the whole room. The girl caught her breath in a little gasp, and the prisoner, Taylor, half rose and then sat down as though his knees were too weak to bear him. The judge's mouth opened, but for a moment or two he did not speak, and I could understand his amazement. Here was Abner assailing a confession which he himself had supported before the judge, and speaking for the innocence of a woman whom he himself had shown to be guilty, and taking one position privately and another publicly. What did the man mean? And I was not surprised that the judge's voice was stern when he spoke. "'This is irregular,' he said. "'It may be that this woman killed Marsh, or it may be that Taylor killed him, "'and there is some collusion between these persons, as you appear to suggest. "'And you may know something to throw light on the matter, or you may not. "'However that may be, this is not the time for me to hear you. "'You will have ample opportunity to speak when I come to try the case.' "'But you will never try this case,' said Abner. I cannot undertake to describe the desperate interest that lay on the people in the courtroom. They were breathlessly silent. One could hear the voices from the village outside and the sounds of men and horses that came up through the open windows. No one knew what hidden thing Abner drove at, but he was a man who meant what he said, and the people knew it. The judge turned on him with a terrible face. What do you mean, he said? I mean, replied Abner and it was in his deep, hard voice, that you must come down from the bench. The judge was in a heat of fury. You are in contempt, he roared. I order your arrest. Sheriff, he called. But Abner did not move. He looked the man calmly in the face. You threaten me, he said, but God Almighty threatens you. And he turned about to the audience. The authority of the law, he said, is in the hands of the electors of this county. Will they stand up? I shall never forget what happened then, for I have never in my life seen anything so deliberate and impressive. Slowly, in silence, and without passion, as though they were in a church of God, men began to get up in the courtroom. Randolph was the first. He was a justice of the peace, vain and pompous proud of the abilities of an ancestry that he did not inherit, and his superficialities were the annoyance of my Uncle Abner's life. But whatever I may have to say of him hereafter, I want to say this thing of him here, that his bigotry and his vanities were builded on the foundations of a man. He stood up as though he stood alone, with no glance about him to see what other men would do, and he faced the judge calmly above his great black stock and I learned then that a man may be a blusterer and a lion. Hiram Arnold got up, and Rockford, and Armstrong, and Keir, and Koopman, and Monroe, and L. Nathan Stone, and my father, Lewis, and Dayton, and Ward, and Madison from beyond the mountains, and it seemed to me that the very hills and valleys were standing up. It was a strange and instructive thing to see. The loud-mouthed and the reckless were in that courtroom, men who would have shouted in a political convention or run howling with a mob, but they were not the persons who stood up when Abner called upon the authority of the people to appear. Men rose whom one would not have looked to see, the blacksmith, the saddler, and old Asa divers. And I saw that law and order and all the structure that civilization had builded up rested on the sense of justice that certain men carried in their breasts and that those who possessed it not, in the crisis of necessity, did not count. Father Donovan stood up. He had a little flock beyond the valley river, and he was as poor and almost as humble as his master, but he was not afraid. And Bronson, who preached Calvin, and Adam Ryder, who traveled a Methodist circuit. No one of them believed in what the other taught, but they all believed in justice, and when the line was drawn, there was but one side for them all. The last man up was Nathaniel Davison, but the reason was that he was very old, and he had to wait for his sons to help him. He had been time and again in the Assembly of Virginia, at a time when only a gentleman and landowner could sit there. He was a just man, and honorable, and unafraid. The judge, his face purple, made a desperate effort to enforce his authority. He pounded on the desk and ordered the sheriff to clear the courtroom but the sheriff remained standing apart. He did not lack for courage, and I think he would have faced the people if his duty had been that way. His attitude was firm, and one could mark no uncertainty upon him, but he took no step to obey what the judge commanded. The judge cried out at him in a terrible voice, I am the representative of the law here, go on. The sheriff was a plain man, and unacquainted with the nice expressions of Mr. Jefferson, but his answer could not have been better if that gentleman had written it out for him. I would obey the representative of the law, he said, if I were not in the presence of the law itself. The judge rose. This is revolution, he said. I will send to the governor for the militia. It was Nathaniel Davison who spoke then. He was very old, and the tremors of dissolution were on him, but his voice was steady. SIT DOWN, YOUR HONOR, HE SAID. THERE IS NO REVOLUTION HERE, AND YOU DO NOT REQUIRE TROOPS TO SUPPORT YOUR AUTHORITY. WE ARE HERE TO SUPPORT IT IF IT OUGHT TO BE LAWFULLY ENFORCED. BUT THE PEOPLE HAVE ELEVATED YOU TO THE BENCH BECAUSE THEY BELIEVED IN YOUR INTEGRITY, AND IF THEY HAVE BEEN MISTAKEN, THEY WOULD KNOW IT. HE PAUSED, AS THOUGH TO COLLECT HIS STRENGTH, AND THEN WENT ON. THE PRESUMPTIONS OF RIGHT ARE ALL WITH YOUR HONOR. You administer the law upon our authority, and we stand behind you. Be assured that we will not suffer our authority to be insulted in your person. His voice grew deep and resolute. It is a grave thing to call us up against you, and not lightly nor for a trivial reason shall any man dare to do it. Then he turned about. Now, Abner, he said, what is this thing? Young as I was, I felt that the old man spoke for the people standing in the courtroom, with their voice and their authority, and I began to fear that the measure which my uncle had taken was high-handed. But he stood there like the shadow of a great rock. I charge him, he said, with the murder of Elihu Marsh, and I call upon him to vacate the bench. When I think about this extraordinary event now, I wonder at the calmness with which Simon Kilrail met this blow until I reflect that he had seen it on its way and had got ready to meet it. But even with that preparation, it took a man of iron nerve to face an assault like that and keep every muscle in its place. He had tried violence and had failed with it, and he had recourse now to the attitudes and mannerisms of a judicial dignity. He sat with his elbows on the table and his clenched fingers propping up his jaw. He looked coldly at Abner, but he did not speak and there was silence until Nathaniel Davison spoke for him. His face and his voice were like iron. No, Abner, he said, he shall not vacate the bench for that, nor upon the accusation of any man. We will have your proofs, if you please. The judge turned his cold face from Abner to Nathaniel Davison, and then he looked over the men standing in the courtroom. I am not going to remain here, he said, to be tried by a mob upon the viva voce indictment of a bystander. You may nullify your court if you like and suspend the forms of law for yourselves, but you cannot nullify the Constitution of Virginia nor suspend my right as a citizen of that commonwealth. And now, he said, rising, if you will kindly make way, I will vacate this courtroom, which your violence has converted into a chamber of sedition. The man spoke in a cold, even voice, and I thought he had presented a difficulty that could not be met. How could these men before him undertake to keep the peace of this frontier, and force its lawless elements to submit to the forms of law for trial, and deny any letter of those formalities to this man? Was the grand jury, and the formal indictment, and all the right and privilege of an orderly procedure for one, and not for another? It was Nathaniel Davison who met this dangerous problem. We are not concerned, he said, at this moment, with your rights as a citizen. The rights of private citizenship are inviolate, and they remain to you when you return to it. But you are not a private citizen. You are our agent. We have selected you to administer the law for us, and your right to act has been challenged. Well, as the authority behind you, we appear and would know the reason." The judge retained his imperturbable calm. "'Do you hold me a prisoner here?' he said. "'We hold you an official in your office,' replied Davison. "'Not only do we refuse to permit you to leave the courtroom, "'but we refuse to permit you to leave the bench. "'This court shall remain as we have set it up "'until it is our will to readjust it, "'and it shall not be changed at the pleasure or demand of any man "'but by us only, and for a sufficient cause shown to us. And again I was anxious for my uncle, for I saw how grave a thing it was to interfere with the authority of the people as manifested in the forms and agencies of the law. Abner must be very sure of the ground under him. And he was sure. He spoke now, with no introductory expressions, but directly and in the simplest words. These two persons, he said, indicating Taylor and the girl, have each been willing to die in order to save the other. Neither is guilty of this crime. Taylor has kept silent, and the girl has lied, to the same end. This is the truth. There was a lover's quarrel, and Taylor left the country precisely as he told us, except the motive, which he would not tell lest the girl be involved. And the woman, to save him, confesses to a crime that she did not commit. Who did commit it? He paused and included Storm with a gesture. We suspected this woman because Marsh had been killed by poison in his bread and afterwards mutilated with a shot. Yesterday we rode out with the judge to put those facts before him. Again he paused. An incident occurring in that interview indicated that we were wrong. A second incident assured us, and still later a third convinced us. These incidents were first, that the judge's watch had run down. Second, that we found in his library a book with all the leaves in it uncut, except at one certain page. And third, that we found in the county clerk's office an unindexed record in an old deed book. There was deep quiet, and he went on. In addition to the theory of Taylor's guilt or this woman's, there was still a third. But it had only a single incident to support it, and we feared to suggest it until the others had been explained. This theory was that someone, to benefit by Marsh's death, had planned to kill him in such a manner as to throw suspicion on this woman who baked his bread, and, finding Taylor gone and the gun above the mantle, yielded to an afterthought to create a further false evidence. It was overdone. The trigger guard of the gun and the recoil caught in the chain of the assassin's watch and jerked it out of his pocket. He replaced the watch, but not the key which fell to the floor in which I picked up beside the body of the dead man. Abner turned toward the judge. And so, he said, I charge Simon Kilrail with this murder, because the key winds his watch, because the record in the old deed book is a conveyance by the heirs of Marsh's lands to him at the life tenant's death, and because the book we found in his library is a book on poisons, with the leaves uncut, except at the very page describing that identical poison with which Elihu Marsh was murdered. The strained silence that followed Abner's words was broken by a voice that thundered in the courtroom. It was Randolph's. Come down, he said. And this time Nathaniel Davison was silent. The judge got slowly on his feet. A resolution was forming in his face, and it advanced swiftly. I will give you my answer in a moment, he said. Then he turned about and went into his room behind the bench. There was but one door, and that opening into the court, and the people waited. The windows were open, and we could see the green fields, and the sun, and the far-off mountains, and the peace and quiet and serenity of autumn entered. The judge did not appear. Presently, there was the sound of a shot. From behind the closed door the sheriff threw it open and upon the floor sprawling in a smear of blood lay simon Kilrail, with a dueling pistol in his hand
0: Even by the esoteric standards of Uncle Abner, which is already fairly unique in the broad canon of the mystery and detective genre, Naboth's vineyard stands out from the rest of Abner's adventures. Tangentially, it's a little weird because Melville Davison Post inserts a fictional cameo from his own ancestor, Nathaniel Davison. As we mentioned a while back in episode one, Post has a habit of citing his colonial pedigree in the Abner stories, and much of it looks to be a little made up. Naboth's Vineyard, where Nathaniel Davison is given a prominent speaking role in the trial, is no exception to Post's tendency toward mythologizing his own ancestry. But that's not the only reason the story stands out. It's also one of only two Abner stories that include formal court proceedings. Because Abner isn't an officer of the law, or even connected to the law in any professional capacity, his cases mostly play out in rougher country, in cattle pastures, ruined manor houses, a seedy tavern on the banks of the Ohio River during a stormy night in Parkersburg. Generally speaking, the shadowy places deep in the hills of West Virginia. Where Uncle Abner mysteries usually don't happen is in a courtroom. Besides Naboth's Vineyard, only the mystery at Hill House includes any procedural elements resembling a trial, and those are improvised at the location where a murder takes place. I won't give too much away because, well, it's coming up in the queue. This absence of courtroom seems particularly odd when considering that Post himself was a lawyer and knew the territory well. But perhaps he knew what his audiences really wanted was escapism and the exotic fantasy of enforcing the law on a dangerous frontier. In any case, it didn't require any special effort to figure that for this story, we needed to talk to a judge. Now, there's no shortage of judges in Charleston, West Virginia, as the capital of the state and the seat of Kanawha County It has everything, including local, county, state, and federal courts. We were spoiled for choice, but we decided to talk to Jim Douglas, a judge of the 11th Family Court Circuit, because he's something of a philosopher, too. In parts of the interview that had to be cut for time, we discussed German literature and the writings of Ambrose Bierce, the famed American journalist and author who served in the Union Army in West Virginia during the Civil War. Douglas quoted to me from memory from an 1825 play by Alexander Pushkin, perhaps the most famous of Russian poets. Sitting in the parlor of the Humanities Council offices, which reside in one of Charleston's oldest houses, built in 1836, it felt like we should have had pipes in our hands and a crackling fire in the hearth. It felt like Uncle Abner himself could have walked in at any moment. It was the right place. The right time and the right person with whom to contemplate some of the judicial questions that plague our country right now it sometimes feels like the nation's courts in 2022 are just an extension of our bitterly divided politics so it felt good to sit down for a collegial discussion with someone who's dedicated a lifetime to thinking about how those courts work
1: i was born in braxton county raised in ivydale clay county that's where both my sets of grandparents were from i guess i would say that I'm probably sixth or seventh generation Clay County person, even though I was born in Braxton. I served a term as prosecuting attorney in Braxton County from uh, 1984 to 1988. I won that election by one vote, in fact. it w- The election was like, I think, in the first part of June, but it was up in the latter part of August where it decided after many recounts. And at that time, Robert C. Byrd was running for re-election again, and he used my race all over the state of West Virginia to say, one vote does matter. <laughs> and uh, then after that, I concentrated in the area of divorce law primarily until I was elected family court judge in Kanawha County, still serving currently today job I love very much. Uh, They always say that most uh, lawyers shy away from family law work, which they do. Most judges hate it, which they do. And that you have to be a little strange to want to focus in an area of family law. I guess I qualify for strange. Winter is my favorite season. I like
0: liver and onions. (laughs) So for those of us who are less familiar, what exactly is encompassed in the term family law?
1: Family law in West Virginia is everything except adoptions and abuse and neglect. I do divorces with children, divorces without children. I do custodial allocations. That's people that are not married that have children. They want a parenting plan. Uh, We do what's called FIGs. That's Infant Guardianships and Family Court. Uh, We also uh, do domestic violence, a good deal of domestic violence. And uh, that takes up at least a week of every month that we have. Divorce is the mainstay, and that is uh, rendering asunder which God put together. And we have to decide alimony and child support issues. Sometimes the f- fault ground comes into play, like mental cruelty or cruel and inhuman treatment, adultery. I remember that people used to ask me what I do, and I said, I deal in human failure. I see some very, very good people, some very, very intelligent people, successful professional people. At their very worst, their emotional nadir, the lowest point in their life. You see some people that you might think wouldn't
0: act the way they do because it's
1: such an emotive environment.
0: You're the right person to be talking to for this uh, particular episode then, given that there's a character of a judge in here that is at his perhaps lowest point as well. Intentionally, though. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yes. But
1: in this particular story, this was a matter of avarice, as I say it.
0: Yes. Uh, I have to ask before we move on from it, a lot of folks think you have to be crazy to want to deal with family law. What is it that draws you to that particular field?
1: You know, no one's ever really asked me that specifically, but I think what draws to, to me or draws me to it, rather. this is the human experience. It is not accidental that statistically across this nation, there are more people involved in family law litigation than any other litigation. There's some statistics I could bore you with that uh, like there's, you know by the time we would finish speaking across the country there might be like 1300 divorces time across the country now and the state of west virginia if you look at it in uh, if you leave out the the criminal cases and and the habeas cases among the civil side the family law cases are more filed than any other cases i like to deal deal with it because of its imprecision you get into situations about bankruptcy, there's law. You get into questions about securities, there's law, there's definitions, it's paper. In family law, this is where you're dealing with human people that are motivated by emotion, they're motivated by greed, they're motivated by lust, and it's, it's much more amorphous, it's much more begging of definition. It's really, in law, I think, the last frontier uh, that's rewarding, and you're also protecting children, advancing the interests of children. You're dealing with human relationships. What could be more imprecise? What could be more indefinite? Analysis. No two cases are the same. I could... Stephen King could not dream up some of the things that have really occurred either in my practice or in the courtroom that people would do or say or contend because it is so nebulous, this area of the law, it's much more attractive. It's not the mundane uh, formulaic law where you're talking about a car wreck and yeah, you know, they either had injuries or they don't. In family law, you're often in quest of right or wrong, and I'm not sure it's relevant. Hmm.
0: It's a resolution of a dispute along the most amicable and humanistic of terms. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring that up because the sort of truth is stranger than fiction uh, angle, because I know that's something that Melville Davis in Post himself was up against on multiple occasions, especially with his first couple of books for the Randolph Mason stories about a lawyer, an unscrupulous lawyer. People attacked him for bringing up these sort of grisly scenarios or these uh, bizarre cases. And he said, listen, I've got a court case to back up every single one of these. No,
1: that's absolutely true.
0: But there is a lot to unpack in this particular story. And it's, uh, it's a very powerful argument for judicial and jury process.
1: And very relevant, too, Kyle, if I can interrupt you. It's relevant. Argue, you pointed out here that, you know, and given all the publicity it has been about the courts in the last
0: two years, it's uh, very apropos. Absolutely. So what was your reaction when you read this story as somebody who has been involved, uh, who's practiced law for over 40 years? What was your reaction as you read through this?
1: Well, the first reaction I had, I remember there was a... And it was probably it was probably a plagiarism of, of posts that there was a Matlock story that was very similar to this. You know, it had uh, Andy Griffith in it, and the wayward judge in that, believe it or not, was Dick Van Dyke. And somehow that just did not gel. That did not equate. <laughs> that did, the formula on that was very bad. Whoever did the casting should have been fired. But how <laughs> I thought it was appropriate here, where the old guy Davison makes the quote in there that the courts of the judges administer law upon our authority, and our authority should not uh, be insulted in your person. And then he concludes, Davison, the character in the story, concludes that you are our agent. And what I think has happened in states that still elect their judges, that we have lost sight of our responsibility as electors. That didn't happen in this story. Uh, when we elevate persons to the court in this state, okay, who do not have the credentials or the experience to be there, I think we have really abrogated our responsibility when we don't take that seriously. And there's a tremendous amount of power. Judges have a tremendous amount of power, they can uh, render unconstitutional the act of the legislature they can render unconstitutional an act of the governor. Nobody renders them unconstitutional.
0: In essence, you're saying that we don't treat this enough like the elected position that it is. Uh,
1: That is a succinct and apt way of putting it,
0: yes. That's my opinion. I think we can kind of keep going in that vein, this idea of, of how to hold judiciaries accountable. We have in this case, we have this corrupt judge, and Abner deals with... Judge Simon Kilrail by calling upon the authority of the people themselves in this very direct way that he summons this help uh, is more likely to happen in the 1850s than it it is today, as you point out. But what checks and protections do we have here in West Virginia to protect against corruption in the judiciary, for example?
1: Well, there is the institution that's uh, called the Judicial Investigation Commission that governs the ethical conduct of judges. There's a lot of things judges can or can't do. For instance, I can't appear at, at, with a candidate to get a picture. Okay, I can't come out publicly on, uh, or at least there's some. There's a case called White versus Minnesota that came from the United States Supreme Court in 1982 that says judges can't give positions on uh, events of the day. But if it's an event that's likely to come in front of you and, you know, how you discern that, I don't know. It's a case-by-case analysis. I can't give opinions on that. Example B, I I couldn't say, well, uh, any woman that comes in front of me that's had an abortion, she's not going to get a fair shake from me. I mean, that's what you imply if you say something along that line. Uh But if there's some of the other—and, you know, I'm not giving my personal position. I'm just giving you an example. Or if uh, someone says— on the other hand, if you ask about capital punishment, I can say with impunity that I can either for or against capital punishment. One, I don't have the power to sentence anybody to death. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now it used to be we couldn't give any of that whatsoever. Okay. We can't really contribute to we can't contribute to political candidates. I can go to a political function, but I cannot give a speech in support of a candidate or give a speech really other than my own candidacy. And, of course, we have to watch what we do. Probably don't have to to tell you about this, but I can't be hanging out at gambling casinos. Or if I have a business, I've got a business that I spent half my time with and half time with the judiciary, that's not good. I can't be in another business. So there's a restriction. your, Your life's in a goldfish bowl. We give up a lot to serve the public as a judge. You give up quite a bit of your freedom, whether or not you know it.
0: As you brought up earlier, one of the uh, electors, I, bl- I believe it's Nathaniel Davison, the character, who says, You administer the law upon our authority. Aside from the act of electing judges, how is the idea of the law stemming from the people expressed in our current judicial system. Do the people have any other influence on it besides electing the judge?
1: Well, they can always appeal certain decisions. Uh, like, for instance, family court decision can be appealed under the current arrangement to the circuit court. Like, for instance, here I'm in Kanawha County. If I ever issue a decision, then the public has a right to appeal it to the circuit judge. If you don't like what the circuit judge did, then you have a right to appeal it to West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals. It ends there because that's usually a state court issue. The greatest thing they can do, they wield the power of the ballot box. See, there's supposed to be two places in American democracy, or republic rather, that all of us are supposed to be equal. One is at the ballot box. My vote is supposed to be the same as your vote. Now, given you know, one of the most important cases Supreme Court of the United States ever had, I could ask you whatever you'd think the most important Supreme Court case ever came out was. You probably mentioned Brown versus Board of Education, Topeka, Kansas. As you maybe mentioned Miranda versus Arizona. Possibly, you might say Gideon versus Wainwright. You might say the Obergefell decision involving uh, gay rights. I mean, any of those big name cases. But I think it was Justice Hugo Black who said the single most important case the United States Supreme Court had in his career. I think it was Black or Blackmun. I can't remember. And I agree is a case called Baker versus Carr that came out of the state of Tennessee. And that's where it said one man's vote must equal another man's vote anywhere in the legislative process. It doesn't apply to judges as much. That means if you live in Kanawha County and I live in Clay County, and there's a difference of about 40,000 people, but we each vote and elect just one person to the West Virginia House of Delegates, then that means my vote as a person among the 10,000 is worth more than your diluted vote among the people of 40,000 in Cunar, 50,000 in County, okay, 40,000 difference, okay? So, and I'm just using those figures to illustrate the purpose. So, one man's vote has to equal another man's vote. Now, there's a big debate going on whether in the electoral college that's still true, but that's why the census is so important, because we're trying to strive to do that. But there's a series of cases now that say that you can have certain deviations. Midland versus Texas, you have a 15% deviation. Well, that doesn't do us a lot of good. Okay. So, one, you know, with the, with the census and, and whether or not to count illegal immigrants or uh, people that are uh, one generation removed from it, you, know, you count those people, that affects a one man, one vote. On the other side, that we're supposed to have equality in our American republic is in the courtroom. The presumption of innocence is there. We're also to have a jury of our peers. That's 12 people in a criminal case. Since uh, the 80s, we can have in civil cases six. Supposed to be equal all the way, all the way through. But are we? If you can afford a very seasoned lawyer and I have to take a court appointment, are we really equal? If an attorney that's just got out of law school as opposed to somebody maybe that got have 30, 40 years under their belt. If you go to that big law firm and engage their services, I know this happens, they go out and they do, especially in the civil end of it, they do your sure. research. You know, And if you're going to have the case in Randolph County, for example, they might send somebody up there two weeks ahead of time to you know, get feelings of people in the community about certain subjects. In other words, these potential people that they interview might be in the juror pool. So they know how to structure it. Or they put uh, other money into researching juror decisions in similar cases in the past. Doing surveys, phone surveys. So in those cases where I can't afford that, and we have a court appointment, now maybe we allowed a certain money in a court appointment for an expert, But are we really on equal footing? I think not. I think in both those areas that, again, I keep saying presumption, it's more a constitutional guarantee of trial by jury of our peers or my vote equaling your vote has been substantially eroded. So in the courtroom, we do have a constitutional guarantee of a trial by jury. That's Article 3, Section 2 of the U.S. Constitution and also Sixth Amendment of the Constitution. West Virginia, I always thought had one. It was even one up. I think it's Article, Article 17, Section 3, where it says the courts of, of the state lie open to the citizens of the state for the redress of their grievances. Which I think is, you know, more expansive, and at least in my, my legal interpretation of it, that's the hedge we have against uh, corrupt judges. Now, lawyers. They do what the job they're hired to do. If they find loopholes, they find them. That that's the way it helps the law evolve. That's why we have a Fabian society instead of a revolutionary one. But judges are the most subtle little creatures sometimes. For instance, if I in a case and and a judge as in a case in front of a jury. Now I'm not talking about a family court judge. Case in front of a jury. I'm not talking about appellate judge. I'm not talking about Supreme Court. I'm talking about a trial in front of a jury. A judge controls the instructions of law that goes to the jury. The judge controls the evidence that goes to the jury. So if a judge has a certain leaning and, it's, and he's, he or she's not motivated by the, most, the highest of ideals, they can see, well, I think this person should be found guilty or this person should be found innocent and I'm going to give this instruction or I'm going to let this evidence in and not let it in. And that may work in their minds subconsciously, too. It may not be intentional. Now, there's other times, based on my experience, that I've seen judges will, could, can. That's the first objection I ever made as a practicing attorney. I made an objection when a judge was questioning a witness. And I objected, and I said, Your Honor, I am objecting. I said, Your, your mannerisms, your question, the nature of your question, and your voice intonation is implying an opinion to the jury on the facts. Jurors are fact finders. The judge articulates the law. They can imply opinions to the jury on the facts, but the voice intonations, the mannerisms, the questions that they ask, how they treat a particular lawyer on one side or another. Uh, Humor, using humor. You know, like, oh, come on, are you expecting us to go to the well and swallow that big one? I think you have to be vigilant as a juror to look at that. And and see, I think the attorneys have to be vigilant to prevent that from happening. You know, if you make the objection, I think the judge, uh, at least in my experience, will not repeat that act. Judges, if they think the jurors have not been inflamed by passion of some kind or another, and that can happen, especially if it in uh, years past about race or gender or morality, they can be inflamed. And a judge can uh, set aside a verdict. The jury has, but more importantly, sometimes the judge can direct the verdict if there's no material issue as to fact, the judge can say, I'm directing you to find a verdict of not guilty. Now, they can't direct them to find a verdict of guilty, but they can direct them to find a verdict of not guilty, and that may be against the jury's wishes, so that's there. That's in criminal cases, directed verdict. Civil cases, it's judgment, ask for a verdict of judgment. Civil cases, of course, are usually on liability and damages. But it can also be boundary lines. It can also uh, be adverse possession. That's where somebody comes in and sits on somebody's property under color of title for 10 years and says, it's mine now. It can be on an estate case, something of that nature. But judges can do that. And I think judges are motivated by passion. I think one of the places that I used to see it more than than any other, if they thought one lawyer was better than the other lawyer in presenting the case to the jury, that they would, quote, help that other lawyer out. There is a a post-verdict motion that could be made called mismatch, if one lawyer is better than the other, then the judge can throw out the verdict But think that the better lawyer just totally rolled over (laughs) the one that was not so good. That's it's called mismatch. That happens, that
0: happens. So when you step into a courtroom, or rather before you step into a courtroom, when you're doing whatever case prep that you have to do, how is it that you maintain this state of blankness that you're talking about? How do you maintain this neutrality of having read all this material, no doubt, that's been submitted to you about a case?
1: I don't, I don't think I have to guard against favoritism. I have to remind myself, this may be, like today, I had 13 cases of domestic violence. I have to remind myself, I may have had 13 cases today, but I did not have to live any one of those cases. The the converse of that, I may have had 13 cases today, but for each one of those people in front of me, this is their only case. Second thing I have to remind myself, too, is if they have lawyers that... Parties a lot of times misrepresent things to lawyers. All right, They exaggerate it. They accidentally make a mistake, or they intentionally prevaricate. Now I also know that there is credibility assessments I have to make. You can tell me your version of the event. person could have seen the other person could have seen the same event and have an entirely different take on it. What makes sense? What would an ordinary person do in this circumstance, based on my experience, and try to discern the truth on it? Now, every now and then, you'll have somebody confess and say, well, I think he's right. I think I was a mistake, or she was mistaken about that. More often than not, people cling to their version of events with a great deal of stubbornness (laughs) and
0: obstinacy. What do we do in scenarios... Uh, I think where this is leading is where we find disagreement about the judiciary in today's political climate, obviously is that people feel that there should be an agenda behind the court that you know that's why there's this this back and forth about liberal judges versus conservative judges. They want a, for example, of the makeup of the US Supreme Court to be such that it rules in a particular way, that it favors certain kinds of decisions over others. In a scenario like this, where, Approximately half the country feels one way about how morally the court should rule, and approximately half the country feels the other way. Who's to be holding them to account? What's right and what's wrong? This may be far too big of a question to ask.
1: Well, that's got a lot of facets in it. There's a difference between the judges. In this case, post story, it's a trial court. The people sit in the east wing of the Capitol are appellate. There's an appellate court. The appellate court passes on usually whether or not there's been a mistake made at a lower level or if there's a justiciable issue. Uh, the issue that came up that's probably more relevant is whether or not we can close schools but we don't close bars during the pandemic. And the appellate courts make policy and they sometimes inappropriately they make law. The courts should never as a matter of routine and practice make law. They should pass on the constitutionality of the law. But with that having been said, I always have been uh, what's deemed a loose constructionist as far as the Constitution goes. If we did not have judges, appellate judges, that were trying to right some of the wrongs of society, you would not have had Obergefell. You would not have had Windsor, those are the two gay rights cases. You would not have had Gideon versus Wainwright appointed counsel for a criminal defendant. You would not have had Miranda versus Arizona with all the Miranda warnings. And you definitely wouldn't have had Brown versus Board of Education of Pika Kansas, about the racial inequalities in schools. So you have to have those types of judges sometimes on the appellate level. But on the trial level that you have here, they have to apply the law. They can't have abuses of discretion that hopefully don't make errors of fact. Okay, so that's usually the standard of review, whether or not somebody's a judge, at trial level is clearly erroneous, or where they have discretion, they've abused the discretion, or they've inaccurately applied the law to the case, or they misconstrued the law. That's two different aspects of judges that have two different solutions. With regard to the appellate courts, I think you have to have, again, people that have had the experience of have actually practiced law and maybe been a judge below, but definitely been a trial lawyer below, other than just been a desk lawyer or taught in a law school, okay, or worked for a big corporation. I think we have to make sure our Senate that approves all those appointments on the, on the United States Supreme Court that we elect people there that are motivated by you know, the, only the highest of ideals. And rather than packing a court with a certain wing of any particular persuasion, liberal versus conservative, reactionary versus radical, moderate, it should be the best qualified people that you can find. Now, what you and I know in reality that's not the case. The trial court, the only thing that's similar about it, you should elect people that have, one, either had experience as a practitioner or have a so- sound academic background that's had different aspects of the law. That's not that's, That comes down to the electorate. That comes down to us casting our votes. That's our ultimate responsibility. Now, the governor may appoint somebody in a vacancy, but that shouldn't give anybody a leg up. We should... We still have the responsibility to be critical of our, of our candidates, and that includes the judges. So it's two different things, really. I mean, that is a broad question, but it's two different things.
0: My last question, which is going to sound personal, but I think it, it speaks to some of the larger issues that we've been talking about, is, at least in your experience, why change from a lawyer to a judge? What motivates a person to go from being a lawyer to a judge?
1: Somebody asked me that when I first ran. Why did I want to be judged? And I told them because I was tired of dealing with judges. (laughs) (laughs) I think in this state we have a very bad practice of elevating people to the judiciary that are not experienced and credentialed to do so.
0: With that having been
1: said, in this state we don't have the most credentialed and experienced and sometimes qualified people that try to be elected to the bench because, one, the pay. The family court judges, until uh, this past year, when we received a raise, we were 53rd in the nation. Now, that says something when there's only 50 states. When you have to include the United States territories, that's pretty bad commentary on the pay of the judges. You don't attract the, the people that come into it. Or you attract the people into it They're at the end of their careers, and I've been accused of that, I guess, and want, quote, a retirement, unquote, job. That's not the case. I love dearly what I'm doing. I really and truly do. To be a judge, you want to to put your brand on the area of law you're dealing with. And that can be political, conservative, or it can just be administratively, I want to do something differently. In my case, speaking for me only, I wanted to advance not only the quality of family law. I had 40 years of experience to draw on. I wanted to be able to ensure the predictability function of law. That means, again, if you come to me with a certain divorce case or a child custody case or an alimony case or a guardian case and your facts and the facts of the case number two are essentially the same, that you both get the same result. So the the practitioners can say, when you two different people come to two different lawyers, this is the likely result based upon this judge's interpretation of the law. Now, I'm known as a judge that follows strictly the rules. I hardly ever vary. If that's what the case says, I'm sorry, but that's going to be the result. That aids the predictability function of law. That's why I wanted to do it, but also to enhance and to improve the respectability of family law. I think right now it's thought of uh, family, all judges certainly, are thought of as something beneath most lawyers and judges. Most lawyers and judges hate it. They don't do it. They, and when I was practicing, there were only about 10 or 12 of us in the state that did it on a full-time basis, 3,500 lawyers in the state at that time. There's only 10 of us, 12 of us that did it. I had cases as far away as Jefferson County. I mean. My main office in Sutton, I had another office here, but my main office in Sutton, I mean, being on I 79 and the geographic center of the state in Flatwoods had big, big advantages. But I've, I've had cases in Wheeling, I had cases in Cabell County, I had cases in Mingo County. So I wanted to do that. I guess I wanted to homogenize the law, a uh, family law, and also uh, increase its respect and to show that this is something you just don't do to pay your bills and pay the car payment and send your kids to college, Just is some area of the law that the largest part of this state, if they have one case in their lifetime with the law outside of traffic offenses, it's going to be a divorce. If I ask you right now, name to me, and don't answer me, of course, name to me people in your family or close acquaintances that had to deal with a felony. If I ask you to also, and name to me people in your list of acquaintances or your families that had a child custody case, a divorce, an allocation, A paternity action or a a guardianship, I bet that number would be a heck of a lot higher than the first question. So we have a sacred trust in family law uh, as a judge, and I wanted to be a judge to undertake that trust and execute it with diligence.
0: Early in our discussion, Judge Douglas used a phrase that continues to strike me. The duty of the judiciary, he said, is the resolution of a dispute along the most amicable and humanistic of terms. And at the most basic level, he's right. Courts exist to moderate, and when functioning properly, they guarantee the social contract set down by our elected legislatures in a balanced, uniform, constitutional, and ultimately humane way. When we become citizens of our nation, whether through birthright or the immigration process, we enter into an agreement with our fellow citizens to respect their legal rights, their persons, and their property. The three branches of American government are different sides to the ongoing dialogue about that agreement, and the courts reside primarily on the dispute-resolving side of all that. But what struck me most was amicable and humanistic. They can feel like alien terms from another world in the last few years of vitriol and partisanship that seem to have pushed us farther away from those sentiments. The resolution of a dispute along the most amicable and humanistic of terms feels like a cool breeze in that hot environment. Amicable, meaning that nobody's out for blood, even if we disagree. We come together to a civil forum to discuss the merits of an issue and decide as equals how they align with the constitutional rights that bind us to a common destiny. Humanistic, because that should always be our guide. Introspective, self-aware, down-to-earth consideration for the lives Happiness and well being of our fellow citizens, regardless of race, color, or creed. If justice is blind, then we as citizens should have our eyes wide open to the needs and rights of everyone around us. What's the alternative? To disregard any part of that compact is to commit violence against your neighbor, to make them less safe, to infringe and restrict their ability to exist as people and as citizens. To make the best choices for themselves and their families? And if we can't respect the rights of others to those things, what's to stop them from committing violence against our own rights? There is no higher calling than to put oneself in another person's shoes. That's certainly what the humanities stand for. If our courts, our governments, and our society can remember to operate on the same principle, We're going to be all right. For more episodes of Mysterious Mountains, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit wvhumanities.org for links to our podcast page and more content. You can also follow the West Virginia Humanities Council on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The West Virginia Humanities Council is the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The Council is an independent, nonpartisan nonprofit supported by the NEH, the state of West Virginia, contributions from the private sector, and people like you. Its statewide mission is to support a vigorous educational program in the humanities across West Virginia. This audio production of Mysterious Mountains is copyright 2021 by the West Virginia Humanities Council. Our theme song is Appalachian Impressions Movement 2, A Drain Through Snowy Thurmond by Matthew Jackford. Used with permission.